And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down the other day for a joint podcast with my friend, the always thoughtful and interesting Andrew Yang, who made such a splash in the presidential race and now hosts his own Yang Speaks podcast. Great conversation about life, politics, and the future. And here it is. I am thrilled to welcome to Yang Speaks or vice versa. This is the Yank Speaks Axe Files yes. crossover. It's like a superhero team up, Marvel DC. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's great to be with you, Andrew, always. And uh, what an irresistible pairing, you know? Yes, it's like half of a CNN studio has come to life. <laughs> Someone's... <laughs> exactly. And everybody misses those. So uh, how have you been? Yeah, I've been good in the scheme of things. Uh, just working hard, trying to do as much positive stuff as possible, get money out to people. We're, we're now at uh, $6.5 million in direct economic uh, aid to people in micro grants of between $250 to $1,000. I just launched this data dividend project this week. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, we're trying to get people paid for their data. Uh, so that's really exciting and positive. Um, yeah, so we're, we're staying busy just trying to do good things, obviously trying to help Joe whenever they uh, ask me for help. Or So we're hosting an event for him online with Tammy Duckworth uh, next week. That's great. That's great. Well, he must be feeling good right now. Sitting on top. If anyone had told you that going into July that Joe Biden would be leading the race by 12 to 14 points, uh, you would have told them they were nuts. And it speaks to the caprice of American politics because no one could have foreseen in early uh, in the early part of this year all of the intervening events that have really exposed Trump in a very very dramatic way. You know, there's all this talk about masks. Uh, he's really been unmasked by these crises, and it's it's turned this race on its head. Yeah, the bunker strategy of Joe Biden, which obviously is not like a real strategy. I mean, it just sort of like happened. Yeah, but I experienced it on the trail where I remember when he won Massachusetts and he'd literally spent zero days in Massachusetts and zero dollars and zero staff. Uh, and seeing that, it's like, wow, like Joe, <laughs> like, like Joe can win without setting foot uh, anywhere in the state. And we're, I think we're seeing that again now where Joe's built up name recognition and familiarity is so high with so many Americans that it's not like you need to see him necessarily every day on your TV screen or at a local rally in order to feel like you know him and that uh, you're willing to support him. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think in some ways he's a very familiar figure. In other ways, he's not. I think that the way people know him, though, is the most significant way right now, which is they know him to be a decent human being. They know him to be an empathetic human being. They know, to, they know him to be a caring human being. And those are qualities that they are sorely uh, lacking or that they see as sorely lacking in Trump in the midst of these crises. And so it's really multiplied Biden's advantages. But that whole strategy of not going and not spending any money, man, if you had just done that, imagine you could have been the nominee if you'd just spent nothing and gone yes, nowhere. Yes, David, if I just had proper advice and guidance instead of the, <laughs> these other jokers that I had. Here's the plan, Andrew. Bask in total anonymity <laughs> and then you will be catapulted yeah. to the front of the pack. It'll be the, the greatest political jujitsu anyone has ever seen. Yeah, I think uh, the strategy requires total familiarity before you start uh, basking in, uh, <laughs> in, 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 in anonymity. But um, your team and you did an amazing job when because you, you literally started in total anonymity and you made yourself a factor in the presidential race. And that's a hard thing to do. You know, 25 people or whatever the number was ran very, you know, and a handful of people really elevated themselves in that race. You were one of those people. Nobody would have bet on your surviving as long as you did in that race. So all kidding aside, hats off to you and your team, because you 
you ran an unconventional campaign, and you captured the imagination of a lot of people. So there's a lot to be said for that. Well, thank you, David. You and I had a chance to spend uh, time together on that trail. Uh, you know, I was with you at the University of Chicago, which was a tremendous yes. event. Um, we also bonded yeah. over uh, our families. Uh, how are how are you and your family faring during this time? We did bond over that, and it was something I deeply appreciate. We both have um, uh, special needs kids. My my daughter has grown now. She just turned thirty nine years old. And the hardest thing about this siege, this COVID-19 siege, uh, has been that she lives in a wonderful place near us in uh, Chicago, and they are taking wonderful care to make sure that she and her friends are not being exposed to the virus. But the requirement is that she either comes home and stays with us for the duration of the virus, or she stays where she lives, in the, in the place where she lives, and uh, we can't physically see her because they don't want anybody coming in or out who might infect. That, I mean, that uh, makes sense. So it was an either-or situation. And she's, you know, look, they're doing a great job. She is, there's lots going on there. She loves being with her friends. And so we couldn't r- remove her from that. She would have gone crazy after a week of being away from them. But it's hard, and she's getting frustrated. She has, you know, she has a job she can't go to. She'd like to come home and visit, and you know, so it's that's been um, that's been very painful uh, to be separated. But you know, in the main, look what I found, Andrew, and you probably as well. If you were lucky going into this, you're probably handling it pretty well. Uh, you know, I, I was lucky enough. I mean, I'm lucky enough to be lucky <laughs> in that I have places to be out of the crosshairs of the virus. My, my wonderful wife and I have been married for 40 plus years and we still can stand being under the same roof with each other and enjoy that. And I've spent time, my son came down to our place with his, uh, fiance. We spent a month uh, with them at the beginning of this. Wow. So you must have gotten to know her much, much better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all, these were all great benefits, but, um, you know, I'm cognizant every day that it hasn't been as easy for a lot, a lot of people in this country. And what it's done is expose the fault lines in our economy that you talk to so eloquently throughout your campaign. There are people who live in this country who are one catastrophe away from ruin, and the catastrophe came. And you see a lot of small business people losing their businesses. You see many people losing their jobs. And obviously, a lot of people suffering with this virus. One of the things that is bugging me this week is this unbelievable scenario where the president of the United States, who's in charge of running the government that we count on to respond to the virus, is also leading the resistance to the advice that his own government is giving. And so at a time when Arizona, uh, which is a place where I spend a lot of time, Arizona is now headed into the red zone in terms of this virus, he arrives and the other day spends time in an arena, or I guess it was a, a mega church with 3,000 young people crammed together, no mask. Uh, and it is exactly the scenario that the CDC has warned about. And so you see the president of the United States actually aiding and abetting this virus. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it is something I thought I'd, I'd never see. You know, so I feel for everybody who is suffering with a virus, who have lost loved ones, and who have lost their livelihoods as a result of this. It's a terribly difficult time. It's a catastrophic time. Uh, there was a commentator called it the Omni Crisis, which uh, I've since adopted. Um, but you you have this pandemic that then is giving rise to depression era levels of unemployment, uh, and then now we have uh, uh, police brutality. Uh, civil unrest layered on on top of it, and you no, know, like how do you dig out of this when your president is literally uh, just as you say going against public health experts, going against common sense? Uh, we we have to start digging out of this, uh, and I think all the time about the 
people who've lost their livelihoods. I just saw a story where 95% of New York real estate in Manhattan is still unused. And so you have these hot dog vendors and uh, coffee vendors who like push their trucks out to the offices waiting for customers and then no customers ever come. Uh, you know, I mean, how long can that go on for those families? To me, we should be dumping money into the economy and people's households as quickly as possible. Just say, look, the economy's on fire. People's lives are getting destroyed. Like we, we just need to try and put the fire out. And to me, it's a mystery where if 72% of Americans are for cash relief, like why isn't Congress debating that every day? I feel like that's bipartisan. The polls I saw said a majority of Republicans and independents are for cash relief, uh, as well as Democrats. So that that to me is like a is something I also spend a lot of time on right now is trying to help candidates push that bill through Congress. It's being considered in the House right now and Senate. It's got, I believe it's up to a couple dozen co-sponsors. Uh, and in some cases, Humanity Forward is supporting opponents of members of Congress who are not signed on to the cash relief bill. Because to me mm-hmm. right now, if you're not into cash relief, then you're just missing what's happening. Well, and I think it speaks to the wisdom of your longer term proposal uh, for universal basic income to put that floor beneath people and also to uh, also to recognize that people have worth in our society who are not rewarded for that now, including uh, parents who who are home and taking care of a special needs child for, for uh, as, as one example. But, you know, one of the things that has been uh, interesting and exasperating is listening to the president. And all when he talks about the economy, all he talks about is the stock market. Uh, well, half the Americans don't have stocks, uh, don't have equities, and that's not the that's not where the crisis is, you know. And I I understand that it's important yeah. for uh, corporate America to have capital, and 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 I'm not you know, but uh, the real crisis is in the ability of people day to day to survive in a time when our economy is still in many ways shut down. It's certainly not at full throttle. <clears throat> so your proposal. Uh, takes on new resonance because, as I said before, it's not just this crisis, but there are families all over this country who are a tragedy away from another financial crisis. And that will be true even when the the uh, economy is restored. Yeah, the, the economy being restored, I've, I've been trying to figure out what the recovery looks like. And the estimates I've seen say that 42% of the jobs are gone for good, which makes sense right. to me. Um, I, you know, you, I, I would estimate half. And so if economists come in with 42, I'd say, okay, 40 to 50% of these jobs are gone forever. Um, that alone puts you at 16 to 18 million jobs gone. And we can look around us that many of these states that are reopening, they're not coming back 100% full bore. I mean, you can see in the restaurants and bars and I haven't been to an airport, but I'm pretty sure that airport's fairly sparsely uh, used right now. Manifestly, yeah. Uh, And so, and and you just mentioned, I mean, we're seeing surges in cases in Arizona and Texas and Florida uh, that are going to end up having, you know, like obviously a huge dampener on anyone feeling secure and going out and uh, doing things that would help drive the economy. To me, at this point, the main variable is the vaccine. And when when you and I were talking about this election in November, Trump's down by an historic amount for an incumbent at this point. I mean, you you know much more about past elections yeah. than I do. Certainly, um, but in, I'm in fairly sure election. it's unusual for the incumbent to be down twelve points. You know, for four months out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think this is um, this is a uh, this is a very pronounced. Uh, deficit for an incumbent. And and frankly, given how inelastic our electorate has been, it's a big margin for any any race at this point. Um, That said, four months ago, we didn't foresee any of this. 
We don't know what the next four months are going to hold. We know that Trump is a guy who is completely untethered by norms and will do anything to win. And he's got the levers of government. I expect on the vaccine, he will, under any circumstance, he will announce a vaccine. Whether that vaccine materializes or not after November 3rd, he will announce a vaccine uh, and he will he will uh, I think he will overrule Republicans in the Senate and he will extend unemployment uh, insurance. Um, and, and frankly, they, he should do that. Uh, but, you know, he has some tools available to him to try and change this thing up. And then we have the issue of voting and how that's going to go and the opportunity yes. for voter voter suppression. And uh, so, you know, my advice to the Biden camp is to enjoy these numbers, but don't inhale uh, because uh, there there is there's a lot to go here. And you've got to, you know, in baseball, they say, uh, see the ball into the glove. Make sure that you catch it. Uh, they've got to see this right to the very end. And, um, and it, you know, there, this is not, Trump is not going to go out meekly. He will, you know. Now, I, I think, Andrew, that his problem is that his reaction is to double down on what he knows. I mean, he hasn't shown the ability. I mean, what, he, what is killing him right now is his own behavior, the way he's handled this virus and uh, the, the initial denial and now another round of denial uh, telling people that this thing is going away at the very time that and standing in the very state where, no, it's actually peaking uh, again. Um, it makes him look obtuse and completely focused on his own storyline rather than reality. His handling on the issue, his handling of race, you know, now uh, kneeling was his tactic back in 2016. No, he was the guy who made Colin Kaepernick, who put a big target on Colin Kaepernick. Now he says he's going to use U.S. Marshals to protect statues around the country. And he just announced, I guess, that he's going to have a big uh, event at Mount Rushmore on uh, on the 3rd of July. So what you see is this is his new kneeling uh, is going to be protecting statues. And, you know, it's code for other things. But he doesn't have the ability, you know, the American people, it seems to me, are showing uh, great character in their reaction to uh, all of this. And, uh, and he is not, and they know it. And what's driving his numbers down is just how miserably he's handled uh, the virus, how, how miserably he's handled this race issue. You know, it, when the economy was going well and everything seemed to be going well, uh, people who were on the bubble would say, you know, I hate the way Trump behaves, but everything's going well. And, you know, he's strong and he knows how to get things done and so on. Well, now he doesn't look very strong. Uh, and the cost of incompetence and divisiveness and narcissism is becoming very clear to people. And it's going to be hard for him to come back from that. You know, not that he can't, but it, it is he's in a very deep hole and he's got the shovel in his hand. I couldn't agree more. 72% of Americans in one survey I saw said this is the darkest time in American history in their lifetimes. I mean, that that's not the kind of thing that makes you want to sign up for four more years of the incumbent. And yeah. you look at this and he, he's got a, he's dug himself an historic hole. Um, I agree that his go-to playbook is is looking worse and worse. Like, you know, just trying to lean into some cultural... Uh, flashpoint and say, look, I'm here defending the statues. I'm here. I'm going to go to Mount Rushmore, uh, the Kung flu or like, you know, whatever uh, distraction he's going to try and use. I, I feel like it's not working and he's getting increasingly uh, desperate because he can sense that none of it is working, but he doesn't really have another playbook to go to. And to me, Democrats are so traumatized by 2016 where anytime you say to them, hey, Joe's winning, they're like, oh, no, but we thought Hillary was winning. And look what happened. So don't don't believe the polls. No, uh, Trump is going to pull a repeat. So I look at the four and a half months ahead, and I agree with you that that's like the major variables that four months ago, we couldn't have predicted this. So what happens in the next four months? Is there a vaccine that changes 
people's mindset or a sense about the future. The debates would be another possibility, um, I suppose, though I'm skeptical that 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 would actually be a key. Let me interrupt you on the debates because I think it's a really interesting thing. You know, the Trump strategy right now is Biden is an addled, you know, weak, uh, doddering old man, and he's not really in control down in... uh, in Tulsa, he said, you know, he's going to surrender everything to the radical left, to the mob, and so on. But the other half of that equation is he's arguing that Biden doesn't have the strength to uh, uh, bring the economy back. And uh, now, but the whole premise is Biden doesn't have the mental acuity to be president, which is kind of remarkable coming from a president who advised the country to uh, ingest Lysol as a strategy for dealing with COVID-19. I mean, he's not exactly a poster child for mental acuity. But beyond that, um, he's really lowering the bar for Biden in these debates. I mean, he is painting such a, a, a dark picture of Biden's capacities that when Biden shows up, and you were on a debate stage with Seven him, times, yeah. Uh, he's going to clear that bar. I feel pretty confident. And, and you know, back in, you're, you're too young to... Uh, to have uh, at least to maybe have focused on this, but 1980, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter. The country, you know, it was double digit inflation and uh, unemployment, and you know, the country decided that malaise, stagflation, yeah. And he was going, and the country decided they were going to fire Jimmy Carter, but they weren't sure about Ronald Reagan. They felt he was too extreme, too right wing, too dogmatic. And they had one debate, and Ronald Reagan showed up, and he was genial, and he was warm, and he was reassuring. And the bottom dropped out on Carter after that debate. You know, it's possible that Biden can actually seal this simply by clearing the very low bar that uh, Trump has set for him. And uh, that's the, you know, that's the downside of the Trump strategy. He's painting Biden in a way that I think Biden can easily swat aside. And, um, uh, and, and so he may have been, he may be setting his own trap here, uh, Trump. Uh, that's a, a great point. It's true that if you present Joe as completely infirm, then he shows up and is completely normal, stable, competent, fired up. That doesn't even need to be fired up is what you're suggesting, as long as he clears a yeah. low bar. I agree with your estimation that it's unlikely that the debates are going to somehow be some launching pad for Trump, particularly if he's saying that, you no, know, like Joe's this caricature uh, of himself. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. I look up, and I try and imagine what the paths to victory for Trump are. And to me, a lot of it comes down to voter suppression, are people able to vote uh, in November and have their votes counted? Uh, We're seeing already now with all the mail-in votes at the state level, well, first we saw massive lines and difficulties in Georgia, but then we're also seeing a multi-day counting period for mail-in votes in, in many states. And so the questions in my mind are around November 3rd, it happens, and then are we going to know, like, yeah, whether that that yeah. vote ends up being uh, something that people have trust and confidence in, like that to me is a major variable. That it, it's mm-hmm. tough to uh, tough to predict or forecast. I think that would be one way you can imagine this somehow uh, going very, very, very badly for the country as a whole. If you wind up yeah. with this contested election that drags on for days and days. Well, listen, Andrew, uh, there are only two outcomes in Donald Trump's estimation. Either he wins or the election was stolen. He doesn't allow for any third option. And you know that he's already setting up the storyline, mail-in votes lead to fraud. I think that's a little bit of a trap for himself, too, because he's making mail-in voting socially unacceptable for his own voters. 
and uh, that could end up hurting him. But uh, you can see what he's doing. And, um, and yes, I think if you look at the elections, we just had these primaries in Kentucky and New York. We're not going to know the outcome for a week or more. Uh, because of mail-in voting, that is going. That is very likely going to happen uh, in states around the country in 2000 and um, uh, and 20 in the fall. And uh, I th- there could not be a worse time for that. If you had a person who had some regard for our institutions and his constitutional place uh, in Donald Trump, it would be one thing. But he he cannot accept defeat. And so he will instead try to tear down the process and create a, a sense of of jaundice about the result. And he'll have help in that. I mean, this is part of the Russian project and other malign forces in the world who want to create, uh, you know, doubts in the minds of Americans about their own democracy. Um, so it is a da- you're absolutely right to point that out. And um, it's it is a great concern, and we all ought to be eyes open about this, and as much as possible resist uh, the temptation to be, or not the temptation, but resist the impulse to be manipulated by our worst fears. Here, I mean, uh, the the fact is, there is no history of massive voter fraud in our country, nor is there a history of massive voter fraud uh, or any major voter fraud uh, uh, attributed to mail-in voting. And uh, we should not allow that storyline to to compound. Yeah, so so that to me is the biggest unknown, most legitimate concern, because I look at it and I don't think the economy is going to come roaring back uh, between now and November. I think the vaccine is a major variable that, that you're right, that he may move heaven and earth to have something that he can at least talk about. But it's not like anyone's going to be actually vaccinated at any scale right. prior to election day. Uh, I So to, to me, the landscape is very pro-Joe. And I mean, he's up now. Like, I don't see that changing, barring something um, calamitous uh, on the Joe side, really. You know, like it, it's his Trump is digging himself a deeper and, and darker hole. I think a lot of it is just that Democrats are very, very scarred where they just cannot bring themselves to breathe easy, which I understand because you have to run through the tape and see the ball in the glove, as you're saying. Like, we have to work, work, work. I mean, it's one reason why I'm co-hosting events for Joe and, and doing everything I can to, to help him win. Um, but to me, objectively, Joe is winning. Trump is losing. Uh, and there is no reason to think that something's going to turn that around in the near future, unless the process ends up being such a mess that we can't have confidence in the results. So that's something I'm also trying to help with on the side. There are some uh, people I know who are working on uh, clearly the mail-in voter voter, uh, provisions in states around the country. I mean, to the extent that those aren't in place in some states, you have to ask yourself, like, what the heck are you doing, especially given the the current backdrop? you know, one one thing I wanted to, to talk to you about. I mean, you have like this storied political history helping uh, many people win. The one that one that we all, I believe, know you for most prominently is obviously Barack Obama. You helped get mm-hmm. uh, him into the White House, I guess, twice if you want to look at it that way. You helped him get him into the White House and stay in the White House, uh, and and you'd been working with him for years and years. And I read this op-ed that you wrote that I believe was in the Washington Post, where you've mm-hmm. been an ally to not just Barack, but black politicians for decades. Yeah. Uh, and you, you've considered yourself... My whole career, really. Yeah, your entire career. Um, and you, so you consider yourself uh, someone who's helped make history on that side. And yet now you're thinking that the work that you've done uh, wasn't enough, that there were disparities that were bigger and deeper even than what you were seeing uh, and I, I feel like many Americans have also been awakened to some of these harsh racial inequities by the killing of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. Yeah, listen, I think this is a historic moment. Um, you know, I've lived through a, a, a lot of these uh, moments in the television age and 
You know, I remember um, what the civil rights movement did in terms of raising consciousness. The 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 the, the brutal assault on marchers at at Selma led to the Voting Rights Act. But this is different. This this because for the first time in my lifetime, and I think for the first time in the life of our country, uh, there is a broad public discussion about institutional racism, systemic racism that that really flows back to the beginnings of our country. And what I wrote was that I am ashamed that I haven't spent more time thinking about systemic racism. And, you know, I have, uh, uh, yes, I've worked for a lot of candidates of color uh, from the beginning of my uh, career as a political strategist, and I helped you know, break down these barriers. But I haven't had a lot of conversations with my uh, black friends about what their day-to-day lives are like. What are the things that they face? What were their encounters with police like? What were their, um, you know, what were the barriers that they faced at work? What are the slights that they've endured? You know, there, there, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said, you know, when you expose uh, it to the light, when you expose uh, America to the light, you know, you see racism everywhere. That is true. And we have just accepted this uh, as a kind of, well, that's, you know, those things are sort of a, a part of life. And um, I think that a lot of people are now taking another look and saying it's not just how police treat citizens, uh, how no. police treat people no. of color. It's, it's, it, it is pervasive in the workplace. It is pervasive in social settings. Um, we just never have afforded to our, uh, our black uh, uh, brothers and sisters their full rights. Uh, we have not, it has not happened in 400 years. Uh, and I think people are, are, that's why I think Trump is meeting such uh, resistance here. There is a even people who Andrew who who are not really that motivated by this issue um, understand that the last thing we need is more divisiveness. The last thing we need is more appeals to uh, to separation, to discrimination and bias and so on. I mean, Trump has weaponized race uh, as an issue at a time when people want everyone to put those weapons down and focus on the real issue. Yeah. How, how can we start to heal and address uh, some of these century old inequities? Certainly for me, part of it is universal basic income and starting to balance out the economy in ways that work for people uh, of every background, uh, but particularly for people of color and women and folks who are completely marginalized by uh, our current economy, which you know, mm-hmm. is going to be more and more of us. And I obviously made the case that it's going to be a lot of us due to technological change. Uh, but it was already happening to black and brown people and uh, women and underrepresented minorities and, and a lot of the people that we're talking about. You just need to try and make things work better for more people and the most direct straightforward way we could do it would just be to start putting money into people's hands directly so that your kids have a better chance to learn, you have a better chance to think. I just met yesterday with four uh, women, they were all women, in the Bronx who received $1,000 from Humanity Forward. We gave $1,000 to 1,000 people in the Bronx that were identified as uh, struggling economically. And one of them said that uh, she had... I don't know if she was exaggerating, but she said she had $5 in the bank and and then she got 1000 So then it was like 1005 And she said that it helped her think more clearly. And that really was like a punch in the gut for me because I think that there are so many people in our country that have, uh, have the, I can relate to that. Uh, now, certainly this doesn't solve all of the racial inequities that we're talking about, but at least it gets us like, you know, like a little bit down that path. Uh, my, my greatest fear, David, is that things just aren't working for more and more Americans. And, and you and I, uh, for better or for worse, are like part of these institutions and frameworks and like, you know, establishments. 
And like I can see for many, many Americans, like they're just losing confidence that any of our stuff is working and that, that there's like a presumption to the work that you and I do, which is like, look, if we can get some people into power and pass some policies and like actually try and write this ship, um, we can improve things. Um, but I, I feel like fewer and fewer people are listening and that there's like less and less trust and faith that one, we know what we're talking about or or can like understand what other people are going through. Um, and two, that there's actually going to be something meaningful that changes um, for them. Yeah. Like there's like, and I've called it like the era of institutional uh, decline or era of institutional yeah. distrust. Uh, and at this point, it's rational to distrust, which is freaking terrible. Yeah. But like, I think that's where it's gotten to for many, many people. And and for these issues of racism, it's it's so deeply embedded where like if you're a black person looking up and saying like Cornell West, this also hit me like a uh, a gut punch when Cornell West said, like, look, we've tried black faces in high places and nothing has changed for us. So like what what do you expect us to do at this point? And you, you hear that and you're like, holy crap, like we need to change things fundamentally uh, while people will still even give us an opportunity to do so. Like it will even yeah. give us the trust and confidence to think that we can change things for the better because like the ultimate enemy here is just despair is just utter yeah. hopelessness and despair. And I can see despair growing and rising throughout the country. I mean, right now we have like, you know, this omni crisis, like mental health crisis that pre pre-existed before the pandemic. And now like the mental health crisis on steroids and so thinking that we're going to somehow reason people to a point where it's like, no, if we come together, we can do X and Y and Z. Uh, like People are just losing hope. Yeah. Listen, I think that we are at a critical juncture and there, there's no doubt you're right about uh, a crisis of confidence about all our institutions. And, you know, it comes at a time when change is coming more rapidly than ever. And because of social media, there is an immediacy to all of this that uh, I think creates a, a that adds to the anxiety and so and we, so we have government. This is a mismatch that's always bothered me, or that's been bothering me lately. You've got government that is designed in a democracy to move slowly when public opinion is divided, and we've seen the impact of that over the last many years. Um, and then you have change coming more rapidly than ever because of tech, largely because of technology. Uh, and, uh, you know, that is a very, very difficult mismatch. And, it, you know, what, what I think more than anything uh, is that whatever Joe Biden does, if he gets elected, it has to be big. It has to be bold. There has to be a willingness to really rethink fundamental institutional relationships. And if he gets elected, he will have to do things that really substantively make a difference. There's no doubt that the Affordable Care Act was a big leap forward. Um, but it was, as the president said the other day, President Obama, it was never meant to be the final step. It was a step forward and it needs to be accelerated. I think there's an opportunity to do that now. I think there's a public receptivity to do it, especially after the uh, crisis has laid bare so many of the problems with our health system. Uh, I think that there is an opportunity to do big structural things like the one you've suggested, uh, universal basic income. But, you know, I look at these, um, for example, these inner city uh, communities. I live on the south side of Chicago, and I've seen communities hollowed out, all the economic activity gone, uh, schools not what they need to be. And, uh, you know, all the sort of pillars of those communities uh, are gone. And these kids are growing up in an environment with a lot of violence, um, and, you know, it, it is it, to me, I, I don't know how kids come out of uh, that environment without PTSD uh, because it's just so stressful. Many of them do have PTSD. I mean, there's like the right. ACEs, the trauma studies, like you can't learn if you're getting traumatized, uh, you know, at home or in your neighborhood. And unfortunately, that's the reality for many, many of our kids. So we need to make big investments to change that. 
And, you know, I mean, I know reparations is a very uh, loaded term, but we do have a debt that we have to pay. And there should be transformation of neighborhoods. And, you know, look, um, there is... uh, there are econo- there's economic depression, not just in the African-American community, that has to be uh, addressed. Uh, and we should say that as well. The impacts of uh, change that you've talked about so eloquently uh, have hit a, a broad swath of communities. It's just that the African-American community started off uh, behind uh, in so many ways because of the institutional barriers that we've created. So there's a lot of work to be done. But here's the good news. I think the things that have that have seemed sort of utopic and radical in the past now seem like pragmatic answers to a large number of Americans. I think there's more of a receptivity to fundamental changes uh, that aren't just uh, nibbling at the margins. And I hope that if Joe Biden becomes president, that he and his team take advantage of that uh, and and really advance a uh, a visionary you know set of policies that will that will make change and that will appear to people uh, in their lives as important in making change. You know these democratic institutions rely on the confidence of people uh, in them to actually promote uh, meaningful policy and change. And uh, now more than ever, that's important. And by the way, you know, you're a very successful business person. Um, This is true of capitalism as well. I think there's a there's a crisis of capitalism and a crisis of democracy and they're intertwined. And capitalists need to become part of the solution here. This, you know, the idea of more and more inequality of more wealth aggregation at the top while large numbers of Americans are struggling below. That's an unsustainable model. And uh, and we need our leaders to make that clear. And we need business leaders to step forward and say, we understand and we're going to, uh, we're going to bring about fundamental changes. Yeah, the argument I've made is that we, we're just measuring our economy all wrong, that we should be measuring it by human well-being, health, mental health, freedom from substance abuse, childhood success rates, environmental sustainability, and things that would actually speak to how we're doing as a society. Because to your earlier point, the stock market and how families are doing have essentially no relationship anymore. I mean, when these companies announce layoffs, their stock price goes up. And you can see clearly that many of these companies can do more with fewer workers people increasingly are seen as like a drag on your business. Yeah, and that's a big danger. Now, you know, one of the things I remember so clearly from my tenure in the White House during the last economic crisis was, you know, companies innovated and they figured out how to do more with fewer people because labor is a large part of their uh, overhead. And so, Costs. Um, you, yeah. yeah, and you're going to see that this time as well. That is a big concern as we... Uh, as we come out of this. So this is a very uh, momentous time. You know, it started off as a year about Trump or not Trump, but these serial crises have have really exposed not just him, but the work that we have to do as a country. And people are really focused on it. And I think that's positive, but only if, if our leaders respond. Now a word from our sponsors, then we'll be right back with more of the Axe Fund. We need a new New Deal, a new American social contract, a new Marshall Plan for the United States of America. I don't know which of those three you like the best in terms of framing it. probably you know all of them are all of them are set in a different time i'm not sure that most americans know what the marshall plan was anymore but the principle is absolutely right how how about we could try america 2.0 does that work for you or is that too wonky and futuristic (laughs) well that's certainly contemporary that's a uh, yeah 
that may be a little too bloodless, but it gets to the point, which is we we've got to retool here. We need we need a new model uh, within the framework of of our democracy and our economic system. We need a brand new model that um, enhances the opportunity. Uh, enhances opportunity for the broadest number of people. David, I'm legitimately going to pick your world-class political professional brain for a minute because I've been trying to figure out how to pitch this most effectively. So, so it, and so my instinct, and it's very consistent with me and who I am, is to say America 2.0, but I was afraid that might seem alienating to some people. Um, And so I was reaching backwards and using things like new American contract New New Deal, Marshall Plan, which you're probably right. People have, don't even know what the Marshall Plan is anymore. Right. So in your professional opinion, what should we call this effort to reinvent America so that it's actually working for most of us, all of us, ideally, but well, more of us? Well, first, let me offer this disclaimer, because in the past, when I threw these ideas out, it generally followed a period of reflection and testing so I kind of knew how people reacted to these things. But, you know, the, the idea relaunch America, you know, is, is something that I would think about. You know, this, this idea of a hint, uh, an inflection point uh, that has a hopeful feel to it. Uh, you know, to me, uh, 2.0 is a bit too um, sterile and clinical. Uh, relaunch America... I kind of like that. Relaunch America. Yeah. Well, David, if yeah. you see that no, on billboards all over the country, you'll know where it came <laughs> from, that we, we, we came up with it during this conversation. Well, take it from an old political hack, my friend. Test it before you use it. Uh, because the great thing about, you know, everybody thinks of research polling and focus groups as manipulative tools of a cynical political industry. But... What I've learned over 40 years of as a reporter and as a strategist is that the wonderful thing about people is they're, they're, they are counterintuitive. They, they, you know, they bring to it things that you may not think about. Uh, and um, so I, I'm always eager to hear what people have to say. Uh, about oh, no, it. don't but worry, I do David. Feel we like... tested the heck out of everything at the Yang campaign. Yeah. We were like data, data, data. So you know that's how we came up with Freedom Dividend. We just like tested every yeah, name we could think good. of. Social Security for that all. That was a good one. Universal Basic Income. Yeah. We'll test Relaunch America because I think... We'll when, test Relaunch America. I think post-Trump and given all these crises, uh, I think there'll be uh, there may be a receptivity to that. So... We'll see. That's my entry. I couldn't agree more. People want to know that we recognize the severity of the crises, the hole that we're in, the hole that many families are in. Like we have to call an end to business as usual because uh, people are dying. People are suffering. Ways of life are disintegrating. I think all the time again about all these small business owners who are getting decimated. Um, and the families in the Bronx I talked to yesterday who were just looking up saying, like, where the heck am I going to get next month's rent? Like, it's it's everybody. And we have to go much, much bigger. When I've talked to Joe, he's re- seemed to, to me to recognize the need. It's funny because, like, no one thought of Joe Biden as, like, the transformational figure. He's like, I'm going to change everything. I mean, that that's actually one of the reasons why some people were, um, like, uh, supportive of some of his opponents like me perhaps <laughs> but but, yeah. but there's yeah. like a yeah you know i mean having run against joe and and uh, you know uh seeing that the the love that many people have for him um out on the trail i believe that he is determined to step up like like i don't think he's going to go and say like hey let's just like nibble at the edges like i, I think he he understands that we do need like a uh, uh relaunch america um you know, we'll, yeah. we'll have to present to him the data on how best to name this thing. Um, so job number one is have him be our president. And then job number two is actually, and I actually am going to say this, and this could these could be famous last words. I'm much more concerned about what happens after Joe becomes president than I am winning the election. Like, I, I believe that Joe is going to win and become our president. But then the real work begins because we're yes. still going to have... 
like tens of millions of Americans who are, who are uh, completely at a loss as to what the way forward looks like. Yeah, I just uh, I think that's such an important point, you know, because there is a you know, there's a passionate desire to get past this Donald Trump era. And I understand it. But if that's all that happens, that's not enough. And my sense is that that's not what Biden wants. I, you know, I, I know Biden well enough uh, to believe that if he if he wins, he's going to want to make his his years as president count. He's going to he's going to want to be remembered for something more than just being the guy who beat Donald Trump. And let me tell you the opportunity that he has. You know, one of the reasons why he's doing as well as as he's doing in the polling, and I wrote a piece about this the other day on CNN.com, is that he is culturally inconvenient for Donald Trump. He is just not scary to the people who Donald Trump hopes to scare uh, about the Democratic nominee. And Trump kind of acknowledged it last week uh, in Tulsa last weekend uh, when he said, um, when he, he, he talked about Biden being the, you know, addled sort of captive of the radical left. But he said, uh, now he's not radical left. He's never been radical left. And I think that was an admission that they just can't make him scary. So they're going to try and make his friends scary. But the opportunity that and you can see it in the numbers, Andrew, he's doing far better uh, among white voters. He's doing better, certainly better among college educated white voters uh, who Trump carried last time. Uh, And he's Paired the margin down among uh, non-college educated white voters. He's even uh, paired the margin down among white evangelical voters. Um, But Biden, I don't think people are going to look at Biden and say he is a radical, scary figure. And that gives him the opportunity to do some very bold, progressive things because people have confidence that he is not... Uh, that he's not going to throw the system away. He's not an extremist. He's not not an ideologue. He's a practical guy. Yeah, that's actually very, very important where if Joe says, hey, we're going to do things big in this way, then it becomes the mainstream thing to do. Whereas if someone else had suggested it, you might look at it and say like, oh, that's very dramatic. I think that's the opportunity that he has and it's a great opportunity uh, for the country. So, you know, I'm... uh, and I also, the other thing I believe about Biden is if he becomes president, there is a wealth of talent just way, and I'm a, you're one of them, Andrew, but there's a wealth of talent out there just waiting to be unleashed. Uh, and after four years of, of, uh, of mediocrity and, and worse, and uh, four years of subjugation of public institutions to the political whims of the president and uh, the dumbing down of uh, of of government um, there's there there's just all this energy waiting to explode to rehabilitate the government and innovate the government in a way that can be really historic and Biden has that opportunity and you know as you know because you travel around there's so many people who want to help uh, so, you know, he has to win the election. As you say, that's job number one, should not be taken for granted. I think it is Biden's fundamental qualities that, as I said earlier, really have put him in a strong position here. Decency, empathy, you know, experience, solidity. But, um, uh, you know, he's been swept along by forces no one could have predicted uh, that have really exposed Trump in a big way. All that said, with all of this uh, unpredictability and knowing that Trump will do anything, it is dangerous to look past the election, and no one should do that. Certainly, we have to fight, fight, fight to make sure that Joe does win uh, and then get to work. You actually have presented a very uplifting portrait of what is possible. I agree with it 100% where uh, I believe that we have to do big things and that Joe is going to be very, very open to doing things in a bigger way and that he in some ways might be the ideal person to bring the rest of America along that we have to think bigger. So this is the this is the future we have to fight for. Uh, I don't know if it was your intention, David, but I think this might have been the most uplifting framing of a 
Biden presidency <laughs> that that I uh, that, that uh, I have seen. Maybe they can uh, quote from yeah. this podcast, man. They can like like somehow make an ad out of it because that I think there's well, actually listen, something man. Really I don't I don't I don't recall um, I don't recall Barack Obama ever being up by 14 points. So. I don't know that they're looking for that much advice right now. They seem to be doing pretty well, uh, and I give them uh, and I give them all uh, all the credit for that. But you know, the one thing, the one cautionary note about governance that I have to add is, um, what, you know, there's there's still a Congress, and Joe Biden will respect the Congress as a uh, as a co-equal branch of government because he is a creature of that Congress where he spent 36 years, but. The Congress uh, was, uh, you know, there was an intentional effort to block uh, positive change during the years of Obama. And, uh, you know, Biden uh, is going to face some of those same uh, forces. There'll be Republicans who will say, if he fails, we win, zero-sum game. Uh, he will have Democrats. Uh, this is a diverse country, and the Democratic Party, unlike the Republican Party, is a very diverse party. And there may not be a complete agreement on everything. So he's going to have to overcome uh, those hurdles. And it will matter, uh, you know, who controls the Congress, because we, you know, there was a vast difference in the first two years of the Obama presidency when Democrats controlled both houses of Congress and the last six when they did not. Uh, so, uh, you know, that that those are questions. You remember that, it well. I mean, you were there. Yeah. You live yeah, that difference very, remember. very sharply. I know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah we ha you're I, right. We have to get some down ballot races um, across the finish line as well. We have to give uh, the new administration a chance to succeed. Uh, and it's one reason I got to say, David, I've done this, uh, you know, much less than you have. But supporting down ballot candidates is so fun and inspirational because you like talk to these folks who are running for um, state rep or Congress or sometimes senator, but generally something else. And they're such great people a lot of the time. You know, they're like running for office in their yeah. uh, community in Austin, Texas or um, uh, Massachusetts or wherever it is. I've really enjoyed the heck out of it. I couldn't agree with you more. I am so inspired by people I meet uh, around the country who step forward. You know, I have a young uh, a student who's running for uh, from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago uh, named Zach Stepp, who's running for the legislature in uh in Ohio, he's in, you know, he's, I, I, I think he must be 24 years old or, or something, but as smart and capable and well-motivated a young man as you'd ever want to meet, just, a, just inspiring as all get out. And there are people all over this country like that. Uh, that's, you know, working with young people gives me hope uh, because uh, they, they are undaunted by the challenges and unbounded by conventional thinking. And they are all about trying to make the future better. And, uh, and I think they have the power to do it. So, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, I wrote a book called Believer, Andrew. So I'm kind of, my brand is established. I, I tend to the optimistic side. But um, even in these dark days, I do see a better future and I'm uh, and I'm pulling hard for it. I love it. Let's put some more young people in charge. I agree. We if, <laughs> I, I think if your Institute of Politics alums and students were in charge, we'd already be in much better shape because having met them, they were so uh, idealistic and energized. Uh, you, you do the next generation a great service, David, because like they, you know, they they get from you a sense of both uh, like practicality, but possibility, you know, like you've actually been there, you've been to the mountaintop. Wow. And I'm 100% sure that some of your students are going to wind up uh, doing something incredible that makes us all proud and makes a huge difference. Well, and, and right back at you, I mean, your candidacy inspired a lot of these young people uh, to believe that there was another path. And, um, you know, so you, you've you've played a great role, and I know you'll continue to play a great role in uh, in in blazing that trail. Anyway, listen, brother, it's great to be with you. Um, I look forward to a time when we're not staring at each other through little boxes on a Zoom screen, but we can sit across a table again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. Um, all the best to you and the family, and. 
Yeah, we're going to do our best, man. We're going to get the next generation fired up and put them in position to lead us in the right direction. Amen. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.